0: Welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief. Today we are in person together, everyone, aren't we? It's weird, we're not on Zoom. We're in the same room. There'll be no weird delays. We can see each other's body language.
1: I won't drop out.
0: Gwanya won't forget her kids. We won't have
2: parents (laughs) appearing in the background randomly. Or or dogs.
0: It's just going to be... Neighbours with hedge trimmers. It's just going to be the awkwardness of three people sat in a room who haven't sat in a room with each other for... yeah months and months but anyway it's going to be a good podcast i can feel it so let's get started okay so the first feature we're going to talk about is the one that i'm going to talk about and this is by john yates and it's a really fascinating piece that looks at um, why disadvantaged children don't succeed in school and the government is pursuing two avenues to improving the performance of disadvantaged children in school or improving the outcomes. One is throwing money at it and one is teacher quality. What John argues in this piece is that actually neither is effective. And what really makes a difference to improving the outcomes of disadvantaged children is uh, desegregated schools. And by that he means a school where you have a good proportion of students from from a poorer background and a good uh, proportion of students from a from a more wealthy background. It's that mix of pupils that leads to a successful outcome for disadvantaged students. And I've done it a disservice, probably there, because it's a fantastic read. Um, but what did you think, Gronya?
1: I I really recognise the the situation that he described in the piece, and I was thinking back to the time when I was in the classroom, and when you've got um, certain students who you know would do better in a different school, and it's partly because of who they're surrounding themselves with and they've got the potential to, you know, it's it's behaviour that they're learning because of who they're living with and who they're they're spending their time with. But I also appreciate that there's a practical issue, like what does it mean for areas where they, there isn't going to be 20% of children in the community to go to that school? Like, do you bust them out? Like, who do you pick? And like the practical problem is that in our society we don't live in a neat 80-20 split, so catchment areas would have to be redrawn and parent choice for schools removed. Would you not have any church schools? What do children do if they're unhappy? Are they allowed to leave the school or do they have to stay because they're part of the that ratio of children that need to be there to to count for this eighty twenty split do you do it in year seven and then allow them to move afterwards
0: i feel you're just picking out loads of problems in <laughs>
1: but i think it's a really good idea but i think on a practical like day-to-day level how how tightly would you keep that eighty twenty, and how would you how would you manage it because people don't live like that do they
0: what if it was um because most catchments are overlapping right so what if it was... Some... They, are,
1: they are here, but think about rural schools where they're the only school yeah. for the whole area.
0: I mean, I guess, I guess one option is to have, rather than a hard 80-20 split, maybe it's a case of you have to reflect the makeup of your catchment. Yes.
2: And well, it's worth saying as well, isn't it? In the article, which is a brilliant feature, and, um, John highlights this really interesting example from America where a researcher did some amazing sort of study on why... Um, it was probably looking at why black poor students didn't do well and the the thought was going to be, oh, it's because there's no money in their schools and the the teacher quality is lower. And and actually what they discovered was that it was because it was schools where there was no mixing, as you said earlier, John, of of wealthier and poorer students. That's the problem. And then there's another example of a child who went on a summer camp and spent time with someone who would always thought of themselves going to university and this student never thought they would go to university and then being around someone else talking about university made them think, oh, I could go to university because this person's no smarter than me, actually. I just never thought university was for me. And that's what I really liked about that was that kind of, that shows why that kind of thing is important. So the ideas you brought, there, the issues you should say, clearly have merit, but also I think the idea that job puts forward in the piece also has some weight behind it. So maybe it's like those issues, if you could overcome them, would be worth overcoming.
1: Definitely. And the the point about how, if you don't know anyone when you're a child who has a job, you're five times more likely to not- Or a
2: job in business, I think it was. or to, yeah. In a business.
1: You, you're much less likely to, to do that yourself that's
2: that yes. it's
1: common sense when you think about it it's really obvious and we should be addressing that I don't know how practical it would be to do the 80 20 thing I think it's good I think we should aspire to do it we should look to how we can do it but there's lots of things you'd have to to work around to make that happen
2: yes that's the, I mean that's I mean I think it's I think you're right but I think if you could overcome it or if in certain areas you could overcome it whatever you might do that if we just put the practicalities aside in a sort of you know, housing situation, it sounds like it would be very beneficial. And if it is, therefore, do we not owe it to mm-hmm. children or generations to come to solve those problems or to work out a system that kind of works? We're supposed to... I'm not on. saying you're saying it's too difficult, but I'm just saying it's <laughs> like... She is being quite negative. <laughs> but um. if the impact is as big as it could be... Well, it should have been
0: solved by the, by the housing, uh, the new build housing regulations, which said mm. each housing development had to have... An alloc- a set allocation, I think it was 30% of of um, affordable housing. And over time, so I used to write uh, for a publication called Local Government News, which Dan actually knows quite well, because he used to work at a similar publication on that, or on, well, a similar publisher. Um, I know that, that, that builders kept getting them out of that mm-hmm. uh, responsibility. So where they did try and create mixed desegregated housing, I guess you'd call it, it still happened because they just keep putting off the affordable housing to the end or they make the affordable housing the houses no one wants you know that are on the train track or mm-hmm. facing the major road and that that and it rather than a mixed development it became well there's some um, there's some affordable housing in the worst possible bit of the whole development and everyone else lives in the nice bit
1: and those things like the areas weren't shared were they yeah is that, that's the
0: one in london at the moment mm. the, the famous now famous an infinity pool that's linked between the two buildings actually the affordable housing tenants can't use yeah. that pool and I think it's a similar situation I have heard and this is you know this was going back 20 years to when I was school I had some friends I played rugby with who were a scholarship student set in an independent school and they were very segregated even within that because they were socially segregated yeah. so you are right it's a more complex issue but I think it as Dan says it's an issue that it's been proven to work so we really need to find a solution I guess you're, not, you're looking at me as if to say, "Just,
2: I have no solutions, John, I just have problems. I think you her in silence with your your neat summation of the other two sides. It's <laughs> like, wow, it's putting us in a room together and we compromise, stick to the and we just disagree. It's, it's, it's
0: harder to sort of bully, groan when you're looking at you, <laughs> in, in, intimidating you. Um, but we have got a box out in this piece from Ed Vanka, who runs, um, well, he's now handed over the day-to-day running of Reach Academy Felton. But um, Reach does have a FSM allocation that reflects, as we said, the FSM in the, in the catchment as a whole. And I think it, it's, a, it's a bold move from Ed, but I think he's one of those people who has tried looked at all the problems you've discovered and highlighted. And said, well, how do we get around them? And I think the fact that he's done it does suggest that it's possible in that locale. And I think XP School does the same up in Doncaster. They have a very, you know, it was set up as a free school to serve a certain community or well, mix of community, and they, they've done it. But it's easier with a new, I, I get it, what you're saying. It's easier with a place where there's more than one school in the catch.
1: Yeah. I mean, one way to incentivize schools to do it is to put an offset measure in. Yeah. And I think then think we'd find solutions, wouldn't we
0: then then then, the same with send, isn't it, like what we're not talking about here is there's a real segregation of send where you get a school that uh. Has like twenty percent send, and the school down the road has zero point five percent, and and what happens is they probably started out at ten and eight, and then one became more popular, and they became more and more skilled with send, and more inclusive, and as mm-hmm. one got less children with send, they became less less inclusive, and the 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 barrier of or the, or the threshold of inclusivity changes with your skill set of your teachers, mm-hmm. which is another issue I guess we have gotta have to talk about is, you know. Our teachers, are, is every te- is that the right place for every teacher to be in a truly comprehensive school?
1: Well, is, does it suit all teachers? Yeah. Because you think some teachers are more adept at teaching diff-
0: different problems. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I know a head teacher who was a head teacher in a very disadvantaged school and found that much easier than teaching in a, quite an affluent school because they were more at home in a
1: And they're more motivated to work in that sort of community. It fits with what they they see the reasons why they went into teaching. Yeah, I can I can see that. I think that some people find the idea of um, of teaching in certain schools really scary. That's a really common thing to look when you look on Twitter and Facebook and the back when we used to have the Tes forums. You see people discussing their fears about going and being given a, their first school, going to an NQT school, or one of their training schools, of being like a rough school yeah. and being really scared about it. And you know, I've taught in all sorts of different sorts of schools, but I don't, I don't ever think it's the kids that you're. I've ever been afraid of. It's always the staff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there is that mythology, though, isn't it, that exists on Twitter of oh you know have they really taught in a rough school have they been there and done it you know all these people who say silent corridors don't work well they've never been in a school as bad as this and there's this whole weird contextual problem is that you only really know the schools you've taught in really Mm -hmm. like and so you know I always remember as a head teacher who I went and saw in Plymouth and she said, Oh, where have you come from? I said, I've come from Portsmouth. She said, Oh, I started in Portsmouth. And I came over to Plymouth and everyone said, Oh, you won't last five minutes. We've got the worst schools in the country. And she said, compared to Portsmouth, it was a dream.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was their worst was not her worst. Yeah. And, and I mean, this was the 40, 50 years ago that she, as a new teacher, she was retiring as I met her, but that, that notion of you've got no comparison. Is interesting
1: it's really hard to go between the two as well like I've worked with staff who've taught in really really difficult schools and then come to teach in a school where behavior was kept well on top of and the behavior is generally pretty good and they found it so difficult in those first few weeks to adjust because they they went in thinking gosh this is so easy and they relaxed and they didn't you know didn't enforce things and didn't have the same sort of boundaries because they thought they didn't need it with those kids, and they soon learn you really, really do. It's the same. You need the same skills. Well, I can
2: imagine all, all you go in and still be really strict, and, and, and everyone's like, well, you don't need <laughs> to be like that. You, know, you don't need to Calm down. Sh- give everyone's attention for the smallest thing. But, yeah, you're actually right. The context of everything is, is always vital, isn't it? Yeah. I think socially it's
0: important for kids
2: to mix in that way as well.
0: Yep, um, absolutely. I, I remember pitching up to Exeter University, and there were some... Kids from both sides of the, well, kids, young adults, from who are very, from disadvantaged schools and very African schools, who did not want to mix. Yeah. I'm not going to talk to them. We, we go to our bar, they go to their bar. And having gone to a truly mixed, comprehensive, I found it
2: all so bizarre. Yeah. It that was in the papers of our that wasn't about Durham. There was a thing about yeah. yeah, Durham about yeah. students, and other students were, were sort of, yeah, you know. Wanted to find out, what in, school did you go yeah, to? Yeah, insulting them. Yeah. You say, well, you shouldn't be here, and all this kind of stuff. And it's really nasty. You think, oh, that's so sort of... If We think we've left that world behind sometimes, don't we, in Britain, in that kind of classist world of you know real, true sort of, I look up to him, he looks down, you know, that comedy sketch. But actually, sometimes it comes to the fore really clearly and sort of quite vocally.
0: I remember when on my on my, in- on my visit day to Exeter, I was going around and I was one of the few people there about their parents with them. And um, this guy came up and goes, I don't, I don't recognise your tie. <laughs> and I went, I, so, sorry? He said, I don't recognise your tie. I was, I was like, I was just a tie. I thought it was your school tie. Said, no, no. He said, Oh, what school do you go? To? I was like, You're definitely not going to know. <laughs> but, but it was—it wasn't that nasty. It wasn't anything. It was just an expectation that yeah. he would know which school I went to. And coming from a normal mixed comprehensive, then I barely knew the schools two miles away, mm. let alone the ones mm. around the country. And, I just think that social mix that I, as I go back to full circle from what Dan was saying. Yes, there may be loads of challenges, but I can't think of any downsides to it. I can't think of any wh- reason. Not.
1: No, no, there's definitely no downsides. Yeah. It's only. It, God, there's, God, there's no downsides, she says, <laughs> but. There'll be people that will see downsides. I can't see a downside to it, but I can see why people would argue that they don't want. They, and, that, and that's the argument for choosing the school your child goes to because you're choosing to exclude your child from experiencing certain se- sections of society that they feel they'd, they'd benefit from not being with. Mm. And I, I know, I, I can't get on board with that, but I do know that that would be an argument people would make.
0: It's an interesting one. So you, it's caused that much debate just in this room, this tiny room with the three of us. So um, I hope there's, enough, uh, there's as much debate out there as well. So uh, yeah, let's move to feature two.
1: So, another debate, this time about exclusions. And this so often gets bogged down into whether or not we should exclude and who is excluded. And these are important parts of the debate. But for me, it's not really focusing on a more immediate and less theoretical aspect of exclusions. And that's what this piece is all about. How can we ensure those students who have been excluded can reintegrate back into mainstream education? And Brenda McHughes, who's the co-founder of the Peers Family Brendan McHughes, who's the co-founder of Pears Family School, has written this piece and she thinks we need to talk about it more so her school is an alternative provision for children with emotional and behavioral difficulties and it's been involved in a pilot program that trains parents to help previously excluded pupils to re-engage with education and brenda's gone from working in the classroom to working with cams and now back to the classroom taking what she knows about mental health with, with her to try and help children and their families improve their relationships with the school and with each other So in the piece she explains how the parents go back to the classroom themselves but they're not being taught at but more with other staff. It's a 10-week program and at the end they get a level two qualification and each week the parents come into school and have a seminar and then go into the classroom to observe either their child or another pupil or and they're applying the principles they've just been learning about, and then they return to discuss what they've observed. And Brenda describes the course as giving parents the language and the knowledge they need to describe the behaviour they see and to understand where it's coming from and how to address it in a more positive way with the school and the teachers. And the idea is, back to those big questions, why do we exclude, who do we exclude? If we can stop students from being excluded in the first place or being excluded again, then that's far more powerful. So have a read. And if you're interested in using this approach yourself, Brenda explains how you can do that. And it's great. And I hope I'll get to go along to a school near me where they're adopting it and I get to see it in action.
0: Exclusions is... We've we've gone from catchment, which is controversial, to exclusions, which is controversial. I I think this this piece, as you say, is a really nice approach. And the trouble when we talk about exclusions is that it's often like another. Oh, they can do that in a PRU, or they can do that in AP, or they can do that in other settings. I think, you know, what's... I think what we've got here is around exclusion so there's so much noise around the issue that how much how much do you think that will genuinely be learned from that example? Do you think mainstream sector is receptive to such?
1: I think it's about joining it all up, isn't it and not seeing as it I mean and in the piece Brenda talks about this um relinquishing of responsibilities that happens when a child's excluded and how she is against one of the recommendations that came out in the Timpson report and she says something that they should, have, they should have addressed because we are still responsible for those students. I worked with an amazing head once who, in a staff meeting, he went through all the children who'd been excluded in the last, like, three years at the school and did, like, a where are they now to remind all the staff, like, these are the consequences. When we talk about exclusions, when we talk about removing these kids from our school, this is what happens to them. And it was, it was, it was a really powerful thing. to to do and I think it's that idea that mainstream schools can totally take from this because it's not the ideas that they're they're talking about don't have to happen at the point of exclusion we can do these things earlier yes this helps with the reintegration but we could be doing this to stop students from being excluded in the first place
2: and I'm presuming in that example of the headmaster and where are they now it was not good
1: it wasn't good yeah It felt very Hunger Games. Right, yeah.
0: I mean, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? And that I think no one's arguing that no child should ever be excluded because I think in many situations, you talk to people in the AP sector about this, it's sometimes the best thing for a child to be excluded. It's not the best thing for them to be in AP sometimes. It's not the best thing for them to be in certain settings. It's what happens to them. And it seems to be that the debate around exclusions is all about, well, should that child be in that school? Well, okay, well, what's the next step? Like we have to talk about where, where they go next. And I don't think that ever really happens. It's like, well, they've made their choice, you get Mm. along. What do you mean they made their choice? (laughs) Like, you know, I could barely make a coherent decision at the age of 23, let alone like, like 14. And I think, you know, kids are quite, are capable of horrible acts of violence, horrible acts of just nastiness, but, I think sometimes we judge them as adults, and if you look at the Sarah Jane Blakemore research, and everything that goes into what's happening to a teenager in that age, we can't really talk to talk about them as an as an adult rational brain. Like you know, we've all got kids now, and yours is a bit young for this dad. Yeah. But uh, you know, you sometimes look at your kid. Why have you done that? <laughs> and like sometimes I talk to my kids, and I'm like, Did you hear me say not do that? Yeah. Why have you done it? Don't know. And you just you try and put these adult yeah. sort of yeah. rationale on kids and it doesn't work but at some point maybe year seven is it i don't know you you talk on you at what point does it does the mindset go well no you're responsible for your own actions now
1: i think it's 25. <laughs> <laughs> That's Isn't like it's that actually so it that is twenty five when you can actually fully appreciate the consequences. Really? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Oh wow! So when that, we're makes talking...
0: that makes so much sense, and I feel so much less guilty. Yeah. for <laughs> Lots of things I did in my early twenties. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> it's not our fault; it was our brains. Yeah. But absolutely, and we we talk about you know they knew what they were doing. Yep, they did know what they're doing, and they did it, but they couldn't fully appreciate the long term impacts of that that choice and the consequences to their actions yet they they get a bit of a grasp of it but there's so much other stuff going on and what i like about this is that it's talking about equipping people with the tools they need in order to to really address it and and she spends a lot of time talking about the social thinning that happens when you're excluded so kids that are excluded other parents don't want to talk to you as much anymore because your kid was excluded, I don't want my kid, like, catching the exclusion off your kid, but, you know, the, 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 bad, crowd the theory, bad crowd theory. Yeah. And it's a real thing, and...
0: Didn't you talk to someone about that? Like, or did I talk to him? Brett Larson in the States, and he was talking about yeah. the fact is, you never know as a parent who the bad one is. Like, you could say, oh, that kid's a really bad influence on my child, yeah. but actually your kid might be the bad influence. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you can never truly know what, know what goes on between the interaction between two kids, which is why you should never try and manipulate the situation. Like the, <laughs> what you're talking about is social thinning. It, it makes no difference. Like, mm. you know, the, the bad crowd theory is completely flawed.
1: And this makes parents feel like they're part of a community, part of a team again, and they're going into the school and talking to the teachers. And that's a huge problem that we have with parents that feel as if they've had a bad experience at school. They're presuming their child will have a bad experience at school. Well, let's break that. Let's have a positive experience in school. Bring the parents in. Show them that they can talk to teachers. Show them the best way to talk to teachers in a collegiate, helpful way. Because they might not have ever seen that modelled for themselves when they were children. And that that would be a really good thing.
2: Yeah, I think that's really important because like I see in lot people's interaction with school might be, it starts small, doesn't it? Like the uniform is the wrong colour or they're yeah. the shoes are the right colour. And that kind of irks them. And then something else, happens. there's a trip that their pupil doesn't go on because they didn't, Get the form signed off correctly because the, the child didn't give it to, him and, and actually you reach that level, by then the relationship is completely, yeah. you know, it's yeah. it's at war. Whereas yeah. actually, like say if you move to a new setting, a new teacher, or you get you're coming back into school again, rebuilding that bridge. How you, whichever way you do it, it's massively important. And it kind of gets into the other piece, doesn't it? What we we're talking about, you know, social thinning. It's like if you don't know people around you, you those connections to go and do exactly. work experience or someone yes. can say, yeah, oh, they can come work for me for a week. Yeah, I'll I'll give them a try. You know, whatever it is, it's something. It's like oh, we excluded, mm, you know, not so sure about that now. You know, and. Wouldn't, wouldn't trust that person. Do you know what I mean? It all, it all just yeah. snowballs and the trouble is that's how, in a quick busy world, that's how people think is it. They just go to quick answers and yeah. it's, you know, it's good to talk and think about these things but we also have to kind of balance it off against that, that is what some people do. So if you can stop them being that excluded kid somehow, you stop that thought happening. Yeah. There's
0: a great example, I went into a school and we were watching the class and this girl just flew out of the class, straight past her, smashed a locker and ran down the corridor. And I was like, oh my God, what's just happened? And the head teacher went, no, she can't go anywhere. And I was like, are you not gonna go after? And she said, what's the point? Like, if I challenge her now, I'm validating the behavior, one, and two, like, I'm not gonna get anywhere. And she said she needs to know that it's a safe space to have emotion, and then we can try and row back. And I was like, that's amazing. Then I went to a crew, and this, <laughs> I won't repeat the language she used about me, but this girl just like went for me, like ripping it out of me, quite amusingly to be fair but completely ripping out. And she was, you could see all her behavior was quite erratic. She was nervous, all this. And eventually, I, I was with a friend of mine who runs the Prue and she said, just sit tight, just sit tight. And eventually she just calmed down. And she was mm-hmm. sat there, and because she hadn't got a reaction, she had a chat with me about the Merchant of Venice. And you're there going, Christ, how, how many of those kids are, how, how many kids get escalated? Mm-hmm. Like, they're in a state of emotional flux. And then because there's a certain behavior approach, it, they escalate because you've escalated, and then they're they're on a path to exclusion very quickly because it keeps happening. Mm. Whereas this more considered, contained approach is still safe. I mean, those kids were in safe environments. Other kids were safe from them. Mm. It just let it play out a little bit more, and I wonder where that patience is in the system now, that patience with a child, that time, I guess, to, to allow a child to just blow blow off steam.
1: And class sizes are just too big. Like You're describing that, and I'm thinking about... When I've had kids kick off in a classroom, and you can't, you've got to think about the safety of everyone else in that room. And often, one child kicking off will make another t- child upset, and they'll kick off, and then you've got a really dangerous situation. And you don't have the luxury of being able to say, "Okay, we're just going to let this play out," because you've got a, a class size that's too big, and you've got rooms that are too small to do that in. And you don't have we've, those sort of spaces. When I, even when I first went into teaching, we'd have rooms where. It was called the sanctuary. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? And it really there was like. Pretty sure was a
0: drug rehabilitation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it was a religious school. There was crosses up on the wall and everything. Oh. It was very. It was very. Oh. and that's where we would put kids that felt very emotional. And you went there if you were angry and kicking off, or you were sad about something. It was, and then that room went because they ran out of classrooms. I had to turn to another classroom.
0: Class size seems a really good point, and I think a lot of the stuff that really good pros do mm-hmm. is when they're doing outreach work, they take that context into consideration. They don't try yeah. and say, oh, we do this in improves. why can't you do it in mainstream? Because, you know, the sensible ones go, well, you can't, but you can adapt it. There are learnings there that you can say, well, how can we give those children more time in your context? And I think yeah. that's key. But I mean, look how much this has got us talking, just this one feature. So um, have a read and as you as said, do, do have a look at what they're doing and, and get in touch if you think there's anything that can be shared about it. Okay, our last feature, but there's a little addition on the end. But our last feature that we're going in detail with Dan.
2: Yes, my turn now. Um, the piece I've chosen is the focus on by Christina Quain, talking about um financial education and the idea of how do we talk to children, I guess, about money and get them to understand how all that works, the world of money and finance and economics. Well, not economics in the in the sort of the study sense, but the economics of the wider world, right? And it's something that I've ever since I've sort of maybe since the age of twenty five. Um, I thought about it and thought, why why was I never taught that at school? Why was I never shown a pay slip and how what it means? And the understanding the reality of, yeah, you, you, it says you earn this salary, but you won't take that money home. That's not what you're you Your take-home pay will be that minus that and that and that. And where does that money go and what do you do with it? And how do you take out a loan and all that stuff? And, and if they ever did try and teach it, I don't remember it at all and it must have been very short and like one general studies lesson at best. And I don't think they, they taught us it. And I think it's really important, I think, in a world where we're always talking about debt and, you know, the debt crisis of the government's thing, people understand what debt is and how you get into debt, and how you manage your debt, and, or, you know, how some debt is okay, like we all have mortgages, you know, that's a form of debt, isn't it? But that's sort of socially acceptable and all this kind of stuff. Talking about something really important, and this piece talks about that and talks about initiatives that are going on around that and why it's in the curriculum, but why it's very unevenly applied. Um, and how we could maybe sort of improve that. It's something that I just personally think is very important. I think it's nice to see it talked about. And I was surprised to sort of in some ways to realize it was on the curriculum because I've seen so little about it and everything I've ever read about education. I don't, I don't think I've ever received sort of a pitch about it. Someone saying, here's how I'm making it, you know, maybe I know we have covered it in tests, but I personally, it and you know, you think that's crazy. But yeah, and I don't know whether, whether you two have ever taught finance no. at school.
0: And it's odd, isn't it, that in this knowledge-rich curriculum, that knowledge is so as you say missing mm. like yes it's on the curriculum but does anyone talk about it does anyone talk about it? and it's sort of trapped in this void between 21st century skills and people go oh, we can't we can't talk about that in case people think we're talking about 21st century you're not it's just practical information mm. and or it it's it's like i don't know it's just it's 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 one of those things that gets a bit lost and every time someone says applied math oh we can't Schools not re- about applied maths. It's about you know the theory and knowledge. And it's like, well, it's quite important. Like it has great success at FE doing more applied maths. So why can't we talk more about financial education? And I know that I'd have had a much easier time of life in general if I'd have had some basics. Mm. I mean, the argument is right. I can see you're going to make this argument. Go is it is it the parents who should be teaching it?
1: Oh, no, I wasn't going to say that. That's a dreadful idea. Why would you make parents teach it? Then parents that have got good financial literacy would then... If you made it res- the sole responsibility for parents, mm. only those people who had parents with good financial literacy would receive good financial yeah. literacy education. I wouldn't make that argument. <laughs> it's a stupid argument. Um, i sorry, I thought it was. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I try to teach, <laughs> and I should never be allowed to teach any any kind of... And if, you
0: should never be able to teach. You should have finished the sentence. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I tried to teach um, how uh, pay slips and how tax works when I was teaching an inspector calls to, to explain yeah, why Eva Smith never read it
0: I've
1: is, seen it. Eva, poor Eva Smith is in um is destitute and I was trying to explain to the kids why, you know, why she wouldn't have enough money to pay for a house. And um, going through like this is how much you get like think about how much you want to earn in a year like you pay this much and then you have this much in tax and you have this much and I was taking it off like that's what you're left with at the end of each month and they're like oh oh that's a bit of a shock like and this is how much rent is and trying to get into realise that you know you can you can earn money but still not have enough money to live mm-hmm. and um I think I did an okay-ish job but wow I, it, it was really hard to explain I think we don't do enough about explaining these really complicated ideas to children.
2: Well, that does sound like a good example because you're taking something, you're taking what you were studying and yeah. then and making them see it through the eyes of the character. Like, oh yeah, imagine if you were working all day exactly. at the end of the month, you have still got enough to pay yeah. all your bills and feed yourself and clothe yourself and all this stuff. And obviously you don't want to scare kids, but at the same time I think it's just that kind of balance, like that that's what a pay slip is, right? And that's how it works and how you the salary says 20K, you won't be taken home you know 1800 pounds a month or whatever it would be it would be this you know yeah. i mean you have to work out and or you know how to i don't know like do a household budget or something like run a do a, yes. big, a weekly shop because because that goes into this whole thing about like leveling up doesn't it like mm. if you want children to be to, you know if we want a society of well-rounded self-regulated people well knowing how to manage your finances and look after yourself and understand that well actually if you take out a loan you realize that over the next 10 years your debt will be this because mm. you'll be paying back every month for the next five years you have to pay an extra 45 quid well, can you really afford yeah. that do you want that but whatever it might be, you know. And I think that's so much where people don't aren't aware of things when they're 21, they'd say, Oh yeah, great, yeah, sign that, do that. You know, so I'll, I'll take that loan out. And then and then that just is there forever sort of walking through treacle with that loan mm, tying cool. them down. And Why
0: do you think we don't teach it then? I
2: cynically, I think deliberately the government don't want or didn't want it to be taught because they wanted people to get to debt because that keeps the economy moving, because then everyone's always just no one's saying like they were saying, weren't mm-hmm. they, like Rishi Shudak said very recently people have been saving so much during the pandemic, we need them to go and start spending again. And I thought, isn't that funny? Like people save up money and the government's advice is go and spend all your money because yeah. we need to go around. And I know that's how the world works. But I just um, think there's a, a cynical part that thinks it's deliberately not taught because they want people just to count. I and
1: don't language. think there's enough teachers who would be uh, in a position of knowledge to be able to, t- to, d- to deliver it. I was gonna
0: say that, is it like a bit like sex ed where yeah. it's just uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you might get questions you don't know, and it's all a bit awkward because mm. there's kids in the classroom whose parents might be in debt and you don't know whose kids, which kids yeah. understand. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like sex ed, where it's all just a bit like, oh, it's unknown, and we're not properly trained for it. And, yeah. and even with the SRE curriculum, you've still got that problem with sex ed.
1: Oh, you've just made me remember a horrible memory from school. This poor kid who was saying that his mum pays more in taxes than she does in her salary and the teacher was saying, That's not possible and he started crying and it was just awful. Like I think a lot of people don't talk about these things because
0: you just brought the tone straight there. Oh it was
1: oh, it, I can even remember I was sitting in what classroom I was in and that poor kid just started crying. And his I mean I, I don't think his mum did pay more in tax than what she did in her salary. He misunderstood it. But that's that's part of the problem when you try and teach these kind of things and you've what age do you start doing it? I remember being really little and thinking that the cash machine just would keep giving you money. <laughs> no. it would
2: well in a way, but tough <laughs> <laughs> to say. To, yeah. <laughs> but do you remember that thing where they, there was a thing about that when they introduced like um, marginal tax levels where right? it's like if you earn this much, you'll pay this much tax, and then if you earn this much, you'll pay this much more. Yeah. And then that in America crazy, they proposed it or something like I can't remember the details, but then, and everyone just hears it as, oh, everyone from that moment on, I'll be taxed 80%. And it's like, no, for the last 10%, you will be taxed at 80%. Yeah, and people yeah. can't comprehend that. And they think, oh, so if I'm only 40K, I'm, if I, Jeremy Corbyn's gonna take away 35 uh, grand. Of, it's like, no, if anything. you earn 40 grand, the last thousand, you will lose more. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you, you yeah. can't comprehend that. That's a really tricky place to be in a society when you can't talk about money and finance and maths
1: and i'll be honest like i understand sort of how pensions work but i don't know how my pension works <laughs> and i don't really get
0: i get that brochure at the end that the work that the company gives you and i'm there going mm, no
2: idea what any of this means i should probably think about what that that bit means well, yeah, yeah because then also, literally, just before we came into the thing, I was reading a thing about, you know, the WASPy women who are, like, complaining about the changes to state pension age. Yeah. They, they've now been said, yeah, maybe they weren't informed correctly, but whether that would mean any action is unlikely. But for people, I mean, our, us three will certainly be getting our state pension a good six years later than, say, our parents. Yeah. And the next generation, anyone under the age of 30, is probably not going to get it until they're 70. So if you sort of think, oh, I'll just learn my, my pension from the government, it's like, no, you're going to work until you're 70. Who wants to really work until seventy? In a, in a world where we're supposedly have more leisure, we're more automated. Yeah. We are saying, sorry, you're gonna have to work for another ten years, maybe more than your parents' generation, even though you're supposedly now in a more advanced society, because you know unless you've got a good private pension because you've got a job because you understood that actually sacrificing 5% of your salary at 21 mm-hmm. is much better than getting to 45 and being told you not to do 15% of your salary, which you can't afford to do. No, I'd get to, to, to teach me finance. You I've, I'm I've literally learned terrible learned at this, right but I've <laughs> learned enough of this just because like, I'm so sort of like interested in it in a sort of personal mm-hmm. I Yeah, I'm but your point earlier about who can teach them. John, you made it, who can teach this? Well, but yeah, if you don't teach people, they end up going, we're going to have this generation of people just working forever.
0: But you, you sort of made it more fun then as well. I sort of thought, oh, yeah. I'm quite enjoying this letter. Yeah, but I
2: think it's sometimes it's literally like, this is it, how it all works. And you can sort of make real. like, do you want to have, have retirement at 60 or 17? You know, think about working at 69 and a hard job, manual labour
1: We could get Dan a TV channel. We
2: could.
1: <laughs> a YouTuber. Have I you think
2: Martin, um,
0: what's his name? Martin oh, Lewis. Has Martin got that.
1: Lewis for kids. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, no. oh, I'd subscribe to that. Uh,
2: so would
0: I. Uh, talking about celebrities.
2: Talking yeah. about celebrities, yeah. The My Best Teacher podcast. My Best Teacher podcast. Um, Grania was guest host for the last episode with ben, Sir Ben Ainsley and did a wonderful job. And it was a shame because Sir Ben actually went to my old school. So you were talking to him and there were so many things I kept on. he said, like, ask him this. Ask him, did he ever, did he go to the tuck shop? You know, did that teacher uh, sort of give him a detention? You know, and he talked to one of the teachers he remembers from school, and I was like, I know that teacher, I know what he's, who he's did talking about. Did you believe about.
1: in the ghost, in the school ghost? I
2: never heard about school ghosts, oh. and, but he, he was right. As in, there were borders at the school and there was other a part of the school that was like an old, well, the whole school was quite old, but I can imagine the borders maybe wandering around at night, were always always oh, but, you know, tales come and go, don't they? But no, I never heard of a school ghost, anyway Thank you for doing that episode. This episode with is back with me, and it's um, Yolanda Brown, who is the, um, well, she's many things, actually. She's a jazz musician, I guess, most famously, and she won the Mobile Award twice for best jazz act in the sort of late 2000s, um, she's toured all over the world, you know, she's incredibly successful. She also has her own TV show on CBBC called Yolanda's Band Jam. Which is brilliant. Which is amazing. My kids love it. Yeah, That's you who I know her from. Yeah, yeah. yeah, if you haven't watched it, and you've got kids, put it on. I watched it pre-interview just for some prep, and I was loving it. I was it's just tapping brilliant. away and had the songs in my head the rest of the day, it was brilliant. Um, she also did a master's in applying, was it, um, business management, strategic business management, Spanish, she's just done everything. But she was absolutely lovely, fascinating memories of school, clearly had a lovely time at school. School was clearly very impactful on her life and the teachers around her and the pupils she, you know, friends she made and everything. Great story about going to Euro Disney or Disneyland for a business studies trip. So they were given one day of fun and one day of business. And I said, that sounds like the ultimate, you know, like um, self-regulation test, doesn't it? Can you go on Euro Disney and as a business study student? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but she did it. Um, so yeah, have a listen to that. Again, my best teacher on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Amazon and Google. And have a listen and loads of other good episodes. We're up to about 15 now, it seems the list is great. it's a library of yeah great content we've got some excellent ones coming up as well Gronio again has helped out with some brilliant interviews which we will you'll see shortly and um yeah all good give stuff give us a clue
0: who's next give us a clue
1: a clue um no i'll have to walk on by on that one.
0: Ooh, that's mm-hmm. good that was the other song i was trying to think of the other song she was famous for <laughs> <laughs> okay well we'll be back uh next week and um hope you're enjoying the summer holidays if you're at that point already
2: If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered
1: to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.